of how things are developing, and we'll be hearing more. But let me dive into um, message this week. So, um, how many of you were here last week? You got to, you had to hear me speak. But um, Steve, Steve's out of town, so you have to hear me speak again. Got you right where I want you, right? Somebody lock the doors. We're going to be here a while. Um, just kidding. My bladder's going to be full in a minute. So uh, it'll speed us up. So we are in the middle of kind of walking through, walking through Acts and looking at the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And last week we were in Acts chapter 9 where we see this conversion from the apostle, from, from Saul, right? into who we know is the Apostle Paul, and we, we recognize and, and see this conversion and this transformative work that the Holy Spirit did in his life by who he was as a passionate person, but who he became and the fruit of his life as he was a follower of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so we were asking ourselves, you know, one, things we were, one of the things we were looking at is like, what's the real evidence of my own conversion? Like, we, we, we read these stories and we hear these stories and we, we look at the reality of what's happening in the people that are converted into Christianity and who are followers of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. And it begs us to ask the question, what is the fruit of the gospel in our life? And I think that's a healthy question to ask because ultimately we serve and we worship a God who is unfathomably large and powerful and good. Greater than any of us can imagine what eye has seen, what ear has heard, what mind conceived, what God has in store for those who love him. Right. So what mind can even truly fully conceive how big and how grand, how powerful and how good our God is. Now, I tend to err on the side of creativity less than productivity. So, you know, I think I can imagine pretty big and I find so much peace. And that I can't even imagine how good he is. One of the great hopes and realities of the God we worship and our Christianity is there's always more. So whatever your experience, whatever the fruit of your life and your conversion is, there is more that God has in store for you. And whatever you've been imagining, there is more than you can imagine. And so what is it that God wants to do to stir you and lead you to be a person that is on fire and passionate about him. Because what we see in Scripture is oftentimes in reference to the Holy Spirit is he's referenced as a fire. As we see in Acts chapter 2 where he comes as a spirit of fire, right, on the, on the disciples. And they go out. They were fearful, hiding away. And they go out on fire for God, proclaiming the gospel. And thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ because of this empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So there's this fire that we've been talking about. And so last week as we were talking about Saul and his conversion to who we know him to be, Apostle Paul, we also talked about this picture that I thought the Lord gave me in, in youth camp a few weeks back, even before going to that, but about fire. And fire is really simple. It has three ingredients. There's a fuel, Right. And we talked about that being wood. There's a there's an environment. You know, fire has to have oxygen. And the third thing is fire has to have a source. It has to have a spark that that there's a spark on a roach over there. And so there's a there's a spark. There's a source of what this fire comes from. Right. And and God's going to provide that source. He's going to provide that spark. And he does that in his son, Jesus Christ, and in the spirit that he gives. Right. 
But we have some level of role and responsibility of what we're bringing to the table in order to be these vessels that are set on fire. And that's last week we were focused on the wood. We were focused on the things that we hold most dear, the things that we hold valuable, the dreams, the ambitions, the things that we have been holding on to. And he invites us to lay those on an altar. That we are living sacrifices set before him. You can reference Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. That you, in view of God's mercy, that you live your life as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is what is holy and pleasing to God. And so he invites us to lay things that we hold dear on the altar, sacrificing to him and trusting him with anything that we're trying to hold on to. Because ultimately, until the, until the point that it's been sacrificed, sanctified, It's probably something the enemy wants to use against us, even if it's a good thing. But we can trust our God to give back to us those things that are laid on the altar, right? So if you're holding on to a dream or an ambition of being married one day and imagining, you know, I wonder what I've got to hold on to this dream of being married because I have this burning desire to be married one day. I'm speaking to the young folks, right? You can trust God with that, right? Ask me. I've got a testimony and a story about it, right? But what are the other things in your life? And so that's the wood that we were talking about. And this week we're going to focus more on the oxygen, the environment, the reality. And so one day I was watching TV, which, you know, I think we probably all tend to do more, more frequently than we ought. But I, I'm full of worthless knowledge. So I watch some, sometimes some stupid stuff like History Channel or, you know, Discovery Channel or Shark Week. How many Shark Week lovers we have in here? So Shark Week, Shack Week. Um, and so I was watching some History Channel thing, and this was about Indians making fires, right? The guy's talking about Indians making fires, and I was fascinated by it, right? And so he's talk, he talked about Indians making fires, and they dig a little trench, and I mentioned this last week. And at the end of the trench, you put your wood, and that allows air to just get sucked in this trench as the wood starts to burn and almost creates this little furnace, right? And, it's, and so I, it's my favorite way to make a campfire. I like to camp out. I like to make a hot fire. So try it sometime. The next thing that he shared about how Indians made fires, he said they would dig, they'd get down on their hands and knees and dig a hole with their hands and then put this wood over the hole, right? And what's wrong with building a fire in a hole? It's not going to get oxygen, right? You're just going to smother this thing out. So as he's as as he's explaining how they dig the hole, I'm like, this ain't gonna work. What's this guy doing? Like he's and then then he described, well, you dig a hole and then you dig another hole next to it, and then they would reach down with their arms and they would create a tunnel in between so that air could suck in one hole and be fuel, right, oxygen to the to the things that are burning on the other side. And this is how they made their fires for for smoke signals. Because it was really quick, it'd get really hot really fast, and they could send up smoke. And then when the cowboys started coming, they could just bury the wood back down in the hole and take off, right? That's what I remembered from the show, right? It's worthless knowledge, right? But the thing that I want you to hear in that illustration of fire is that fire has to have this environment. And that environment is what we find in Scripture as this place of our heart. So as we open up Scripture and look at where we left off last week and dive into what we have in store for us this week, I want you to hear that God has a plan to move on your heart and my heart every day and leading our heart to an environment that is welcoming and that is pleasing to Him. And that's what we're diving into and trying to understand this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. In wrapping up 
again, you need to study this yourself because we're going at such a pace through Acts that there's a lot of great stuff in here. But we're flying through some different pieces. So you're just getting bits and pieces of things that we could talk about. And so wrapping up what we're, what we're seeing in Saul's conversion, um, I want to read verse 31. And we transition from Saul to Peter after this verse. This is the description of what was taking place in the church in Jerusalem as the apostles were gathering and the Holy Spirit was moving. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting phrase, fear of the Lord. You know, if you've been at Vintage for a while, I preached a sermon on this a while back. I'm going to give you the sermonette of that sermon because I think there's something valuable in this. Fear of the Lord is an interesting phrase. When we think fear, we think of what I'm going to call lowercase f because the fear of the Lord I'm going to call capital F, right? When we think of fear and we think of lowercase f, we think of what I'm afraid of, what scares me, what I don't want to have happen, something that is uncomfortable. We think of the boogeyman in the closet, right? And so we think of what we don't want to have happen. And what we have to understand is this capital F is the antidote to this lowercase f that wants to steal, kill, and destroy so many things in our life. And this capital F is this reality that is true and real. And where we don't have it, we're living in a lie. This reality that God is huge, that God is all-powerful. That God is good. And we see time and time again in Scripture in the Old Testament where when people came into the presence of the Lord, they fell on their faces though dead. A trembling awe of God's power and majesty and His glory overcame them to the point that they didn't feel like they could stand. Didn't feel like they could look upon the, the mightiness, the, the majesty of God because He was so amazing. Right. And so a heart that is is fearful of the Lord is a heart that is making God is stepping into the reality of how big and how amazing he is. And in awe of that, because when we are in fear of the Lord, then God is really, really big. And the lowercase f fears can get really, really small. But where we are gripped with that lowercase f fear, then that thing that we're scared of seems really big to us. When we place it before our God and step into this place of wisdom, as Scripture would teach us, we step into this place of wisdom, then suddenly, what is this small thing before my mighty God? In the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is a humility of who we are before God. It is a reverence of who we are in relationship to him and what everything else in all of creation that he spoke into existence is in comparison to who he is, the mighty God we serve, who saves. That's the fear of the Lord. And you need to understand what that phrase means in order to understand what we're diving into. So I'm going to continue on because we hear about the fear of the Lord three or four different times in this passage, but we don't have time to dive in and me read you the whole chapter today. But I want to read to you the story of Cornelius. It starts in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, 
in what was known to be the Italian regiment. He and all, the fa- all his family were devout and God-fearing. It's important. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision and he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is, what is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying at, at he is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him was, had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. And he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now we're going to fast forward and I'm going to pick up in verse 19 in just a second. But let me tell you what we're skipping over. Try to do so quickly. Then Peter comes onto the scene, and Peter is on a rooftop in Joppa. Simon, called Peter, is on a rooftop in Joppa, on, in the house of Simon the fisherman, right? Uh, excuse me, the tanner. And so he has this vision, and this vision he sees this, you're probably familiar with the story, this, this blanket lower down, and here's this voice, you know, what I've made clean is clean, right? And so he has this vision, and he's praying about it. And then as he is praying over this vision, he hears another word, he said, There are three men coming to your house. They've arrived. Go with them. I sent them to you. So Peter comes down, and here's where we pick up in verse 19. So while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have Come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house and so, so he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house as he went and got his stuff together and packed his bags and put them in a suitcase and, and then hopped in the Honda Accord and took off, right? So here's Peter and he hears this voice. Now these were Gentile people and Peter was a Jew. Peter is going to go into the house of a Gentile, which as a customary tradition, a Jewish man would be forbidden to do because it would make him unclean. If he was unclean, then he would have to go and make sacrifice to be able to come into the presence of God or be able to enter into the temple again. So what Peter is about to do and what he's committing to breaks the rules that Peter lives by. But if an angel came to you and said, I'm sending these people to you and you're just following along. He's giving you these visions and you've been walking with Jesus and you've seen him perform miracles like there's nothing that's out of the picture. And so Peter is walking in the fear of the Lord and just saying, yes, and amen, Lord, whatever you want. I'm just here to be your servant. I'm just here to follow you. And so what happens next is Cornelius. I mean, Peter goes to Cornelius's house and says, why am I here? Cornelius tells him the whole story that I read earlier. Angel came to me, gave you this message. I don't know why you're here. Other than to tell us what it is you had to tell us. Cornelius was not a Christian. But what was said about him? He and his family lived in the fear of the Lord. He and his family, as they gave their sacrifices, as they gave their offering, it came to the Lord as a memorial service, as this memorial offering, right? So the condition of Cornelius' heart and who Cornelius was, who Cornelius was and who his family was, is a person who has God's attention because of this fear 
and how big you are. How mighty you are to save. And the Lord chooses to send Peter to speak to him. And so Peter says, you know, basically, have you heard about Jesus? Well, then I'm here to tell you about about Jesus. And he he says in verse 34, um, then Peter began to speak. And I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You see, up until this moment, the good news of the gospel was just preached among the Jewish people. It had not spread into the Gentiles. And that is a huge mountain, theologically, that we could go into. That this prophecy, this, this understanding that one day the good news will also be shared with the Gentiles, not just us Jews. Right? That is a huge thing theologically, but we're not going there this morning. I just want you to see just how packed this is. And so then Peter began to, to speak and to, to share the gospel of who Jesus Christ was and that he who he followed and the miracles that he did and the resurrection that took place and Jesus is appearing to, to himself and, and the other and, and others. Right. And so we're going to pick up in verse four, verse 42. And so he commanded us, this is Peter speaking, he commanded us to preach and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed to as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And like an interruption, then we see verse 44. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they had They heard them speaking in tongues and were praising God. And then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay and they ate barbecue together. Huge moment. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God, has now stepped into a living relationship in the receiving of the Spirit with not just Jews, but with Gentiles. And who did this come upon? It came upon a man and his family whose hearts were in a place before God that this oxygen could feed this flame. Friends, where our hearts are out of place, it's like trying to build a fire in a hole. But God has a plan for you and for me that he leads us to a place that this can become a furnace. That not just you, but that other people are warmed by. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the reality of the Holy Spirit desiring having his way in our lives. But you and I have a responsibility to bring some things to the table. We have a responsibility to to have our hearts in a place and a condition. You see... Scripture is very clear, and we see a couple couple verses from the Old Testament. It's very clear that the Lord judges a man by the motivations of his heart. First Samuel chapter sixteen. Before we look, before we read it, First Samuel chapter sixteen. The setting is Samuel has been commissioned by God. Saul is the king over Israel, but he's been commissioned to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king over Israel. And so he brings Jesse's sons before. Before him, and he looks at this older brother of David, and he sees here is a strong, handsome, you know, amazing-looking guy, and he says, "Surely that is the that is the son that the Lord has has chosen to be the next king over Israel." 
And this is what the Lord says in in response to Samuel's thoughts. Verse seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, in First Chronicles chapter 28, this is David speaking to his son Solomon. He says, Solomon, and you, my son Solomon, acknowledge that the Lord your father and serve him with, with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. You see, the Lord weighs a man by the motivation of his heart. I'm pulling this off the top of my head. I believe it's, it's Proverbs 16.1. All, all of man's ways seem innocent to him, but the Lord knows the motivations of the heart. What that passage is saying is we can fool ourselves. We can find ourselves blind and in a hole trying to create a fire that's just not going to happen because our heart has suffocated is at a place of just suffocating before God that it's not ready to receive all that God has. And so we have to put before ourselves and we have to bring before God a heart that is open and that is motivated, that is in fear of who he is. That's what we see happening in Cornelius' reality is that his heart was and his family's heart was in this condition of being in awe of who he is. They didn't even yet know, they had not yet heard of Jesus and the gospel. And Peter comes and brings that message. And with it came a fire on dry timber and a fire with air just pouring into it because of this condition of the heart. So let me ask you, where's your heart? And how are we to know where our heart is? Again, we see in Proverbs that reality that all our ways seem innocent to us. We can justify anything. Give us long enough in a dark place and we'll start to justify sin. We'll fool ourselves. But I have good news. God has sent his spirit. He comes into the world to convict the world of sin. He comes to be a counselor. He comes to direct. He comes to guide. And as we come before him and we desire, as David did, Lord, search me and know me. Know my anxious thoughts. Know how caught up I am in my own ways. And renew. Give me a new heart and renew a right spirit within me. As we as a people are able to embrace that same heart that David had. As we come before the Lord and we are desiring to be to let him dig in and underneath the surface of all that we've been trying to hold up. Then the Lord will come and bring this ability and this place where we're sitting before him as dry timber up in the air, ready to be caught aflame. So how do you get there? Like, it's one thing for me to be able to say, OK, this is what we see to be true. It's another thing to be able to say, OK, well, how do I get there? And it, it's really simple. You can't get there alone. It helps to have others in community. You're not going to. See that fire really happen. It comes from the Holy Spirit. He is the source. He is the the spark that creates and allows everything to happen. But one thing we can do in how we present ourselves is we ask the Holy Spirit a question. Lord, show me. Show me where my heart is living 
blind and manipulating every situation because of my selfishness. Because where and every one of us are guilty of this, we were all born into the nature of sin. We were all born into the nature of pride. We were all born into self being the sin. But I have good news. Jesus came that we would no longer live with our lives stolen, killed, and destroyed. He came that we could live with our lives fixed and settled on the foundation of who he is, not on who we are, who we want to be, not on our own ambitions, not our own dreams, not our own desires, but fixed on the reality of who he is. We can come to Jesus Christ and accept him, receive his Holy Spirit, and ask the Holy Spirit, who now comes and lives within us, Lord, show me where my heart is living selfish, selfishly. Show me my pride. Show me how I'm attempting to, to make a fire in this hole. Come and renew a right spirit within me. Come and lead me to the life of selflessness that brings with it a freedom for everything else to burn. As Paul said last week, I consider all that other stuff rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To be able to step into this passion, to be able to step into this fire, to step into the reality and the goodness of who God is. Our hearts have to be in this place, in this environment, conditioned that is right for the Holy Spirit to be able to come and burn. And that is the responsibility that you and I have. He brings the spark. He is the source. He is the fire. But we have a responsibility in our lives to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and to condition and to bring before him a heart and an environment that is right for him to come and burn. So we ask ourselves the how we ask ourselves. We ask the Holy Spirit the question, show me. Where am I living selfishly? Blinded by my own pride. And won't you come and teach me and lead me and guide me for your righteous name's sake. Guide me in all your ways to live selflessly that I can be set ablaze for you. Now, I had an interesting moment earlier this week as I I don't normally preach two weeks in a row. um, And. So I had read ahead in in Acts, you know, going into this week. But on Monday morning, as I got, I came into the office and um, and started to get ready to prepare for this week's message. Last week, we, we as we went through Acts chapter nine, we also touched base in Daniel chapter three, where we heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you if you remember that, right? And so, you know, Daniel chapter three is the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, right? And as I picked up my Bible and about to pray, and I was expecting to go into the fear of the Lord piece, um, I just, a crazy thought went through my head, right? Maybe it was God speaking. And I felt like, if it was God speaking, I felt like God said, well, you're going to be back in Daniel chapter 4 next week. Well, I don't know what's Daniel chapter 4, okay? I mean, you could pick a few chapters and verses of the Bible, and I can sound like I know what I'm doing, right? But I didn't know what Daniel chapter 4 was, so I decided, well, let me be obedient to that thought and, and turn and see what came next in Daniel. And interesting story. It's a story about King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And his dream was that he saw this enormous tree that was incredibly wide and it reached as high as the sky. And the birds of the, 
you know, field and everything came and fed and took shelter in its wings. And it was just this incredible tree. And what happened in this dream is, you know, the tree that was so vast and enormous and beautiful was then cut down. Right. And Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed by the dream. So he called all the magicians and, you know, seers and everything before him and asked for an interpretation of the dream. And nobody could give him interpretation. And then he called Daniel and he said of Daniel, he said, you're a man filled with the spirit of the God. And I believe that the Lord can give you an interpretation for the dream. And so then he goes on and tells Daniel the dream. And I'm summarizing so you don't have to hear the whole story. Right. I don't have to read the whole chapter. Summarizes um, and, and tells tells Daniel the dream. And so Daniel prays about it and is is troubled. And he says that, OK, yes, I have an interpretation for you, King. But Daniel didn't want to give the dream or share the interpretation. He said, the interpretation I have for you is that you are the tree and your kingdom is vast and it's enormous and it reaches to the sky and it covers over everything. It's incredibly prosperous. But the Lord is about to knock you off and you're going to go out into the field like and live like an animal and and you're going to eat grass like animals eat and your mind's going to go kaput and you're going to be crazy for a season. Right. And so I'm just summarizing what you can go read in Daniel chapter four, because I want to pick up. I'm going to pick up in verse thirty three. This is King Nebuchadnezzar writing this chapter. Fascinating. This is his testimony. Right. Because the king I hadn't said everything up yet. The king was standing. On his rooftop a year after. Daniel gave him this interpretation of the dream, and this is what it says. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? This is King Nebuchadnezzar speaking of himself, right? Skipping down, Daniel says, this is going to happen to you. Immediately, what had been said of Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew, grew like the feathers of an eagle and like nails and, and his nails like claws of a bird. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me and the glory of my kingdom. My ad, my advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than I had before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I hope that my heart and yours are not so full of pride that the Lord has to humble us. But he loves us too much to not do so. If needed. He loves us too much. 
to not do so if needed. Because he loves us. You see, the difficulties, the hardships, they are humbling opportunities. But it is a humble, reverent heart that is dry and ready for the Spirit of God to burn. So you're asking yourself the question, are you inviting the Holy Spirit to come? Search me. Search my anxiousness and my, my wandering thoughts. Search my, my fears and And Lord, lead me to be a person who could be set ablaze for you. I'm tired of working so hard trying to earn my keep and trying to make this fire in a hole. I thought the Lord gave me a word for us, a church, this week. And that word is that for Christians, in all of Christianity, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this should be true for everything in your life. There is nothing in Christianity that is about earning. But everything in Christianity is about worship. There's nothing in what Daniel was doing in offering his sacrifices and caring for the poor. There was nothing about trying to earn the favor of God. Everything because as it was described, as he was described, because of his fear of the Lord. He was doing this out of a place of worship. He was doing this being motivated to worship his God that. What are these things to me before my God? I just offer them. I care for the poor. I I respond in worship. Everything about Christianity, everything for a Christian should be about worship. Let me just unpack that because I didn't in the first service because I didn't get it till worship in the in the in the second. Everything. Everybody take a breath. That breath should be about worship. When you get up in the morning and make your coffee, it should be a moment of worship. When you get in your car and go get stuck in traffic, it's a moment to worship. When you go to work, you should be able to worship. When you meet someone at the rail station, when you go into the grocery store, every moment of every breath of everything you do in your life, if you are a Christian, should be on the foundation to worship this king who I stand before. But most of us going around, not dissimilar because of the pride in our life, than King Nebuchadnezzar and sitting on the back porch enjoying our, our big green egg and enjoying what we've gone out and earned and praising God for it. I don't have a big green egg yet, but I want to worship God when I get one, right? We love to take pride over the things that we've worked hard to, to get. But friends, the Holy Spirit has something more, has something freeing, has something alive to offer us. It's like, just let it be a moment of worship. When you go to the bathroom, let it be a moment of worship. There's nothing you can't do. Praise God that everything works, right? When it's not, when everything's not working, right? Well, praise God that you're still here and that this body's going to die one day, but you can live forever. In everything, you can find a way to turn this and make God big and this thing small. And that's what a heart before God is motivated to do. Will you join me in trying to be a person and being a community and being a family that wants God to create a fire? Not just a candle. For heaven's sakes, not a plastic candle, battery powered, but a bonfire. Singing his praise in all that we do. And let the rest of the world just come and gather and be changed. Let's pray.
Jesus, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your joy. I thank you for the moments we get excited about and the things we get to go do in this lifetime that you've given us. But, Lord, let us never be distracted by those enjoyable things. Test our hearts. Show us where we're being selfish. Show us where even the good things that we're doing, Lord, there's something more you probably have in store. Jesus, so much of our lives and in the culture we live is just at such a fast pace. We never even slow down to ask you a question. We're just trying to strike a match in a hole. It'll just go out like a puff. Thank you that you have more. Thank you that you are worthy to be praised. Now, Lord, we ask that your spirit would come. Lord, just gather us up like pallets, pallets of wood to make a big bonfire. So hot that you can't even walk near it. You just feel it from a distance. Lord, this isn't a fire that you can roast marshmallows over. It's too hot. But Lord, it does bring warmth to a cold and dark and dreary people. Set us on fire. Renew a right spirit within me. Test me. Let me know my anxious thoughts and bring them before you as a a stick to lay on the altar. Holy Spirit, come and bring your fear. Just stepping into the reality of truth that you are so big we can't even imagine. Let that fear overshadow all the things in our life. Drive out, drive away those little fears and try to hold back your love. Jesus, fan that flame.